Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, I want to see feisty disabled people change the world. So declared disability rights activist Judy Human, who died last weekend at age 75. As a child with polio, Human was denied entry to kindergarten on grounds that her wheelchair was a fire hazard. Later, she was denied a teacher's license for reasons no more elevated. She sued, won, and became the first teacher in New York to use a wheelchair. Media love those kinds of breakthroughs, and they matter. Here's hoping journalists will extend their interest into the barriers disabled people face in 2023 and how policy changes could address those. We'll talk with Kim Noxted, Senior Fellow at the Century Foundation and Director of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative. And speaking of problems that aren't actually behind us, you will have heard that the U.S. is experiencing blowout job growth and unemployment is at a historic low, with gains extending even to historically marginalized black people. Algernon Austin from the Center for Economic Policy and Research will help us understand how employment data can obscure, even as it reveals, and how, if our problem is joblessness, there are, in fact, time-tested responses. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Human rights advocates everywhere marked the death, March 5th, of groundbreaking disability justice activist, spokesperson, and policymaker Judy Human. Obituaries rightfully noted meaningful advances Human played a role in, like the Americans with Disabilities Act. It rang a bit odd, though, to read in the Washington Post that Human, born in 1947, quote, came of age at a time when disabled people had restricted access to libraries, schools, and public transportation, with limited opportunities for education or employment, close quote. Perhaps the outpouring of attention for humans' life and work could encourage journalists to explore present-day restrictions, limitations, crises confronted by people with disabilities, one in four adults in the country, along with what responses, including policy responses, are called for. Kim Noxted is Senior Fellow at the Century Foundation and Director of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Kim Noxted. Hi, I'm glad to be with everyone today. Well, I'm not making fun of that piece, um, but I was just struck by that kind of cast your mind back, if you can, to a time when disabled people didn't enjoy all the freedoms. Mm-hmm. I guess my thought, just to start us off, yeah. is is that, but also Judy Human was emphatically not of the wait patiently and progress will inevitably come school of thinking, was she? Oh, no. No, not at all. <laughs> Judy was definitely one to fight for what she wanted, and she was fiery, and um, one of the words she loved to use was feisty, mm-hmm. and she really went after what she knew was wrong. And during her services yesterday, I was uh, very lucky to attend and be in community with so many people from around the country and by video around the world. We got to hear so many stories about her, and every story had a note about her you know, fighting for the rights of disabled people and against the injustices that so many of us face. 
and still face, I mean, and this is kind of my, you know, this is, of course, what I'm uh-huh. complaining about here. The treatment of disabled people as an afterthought uh, in policy, yep. in media, which I know is what you engage. And it's it's weird, given not only that so many people in this country are living with disabilities of varying kinds, but also because it's a community that anyone can join at any moment. And indeed, I've heard COVID described as a mass disabling event. And I wanted to ask you, what is COVID showing us about policy responsiveness, about movement responsiveness? What are some of the impacts when the disabled community grows, as it were, suddenly in this way? I appreciate you pointing out that anyone can become disabled at any time because that is part of what I think the U.S. economy is actually facing right now with the growth of the disability community in a very abrupt way because of COVID. And we do have the largest influx of the community that we've seen in many, many years. And that has really caused the workforce to try to make an adjustment. And that adjustment's been slow. It's been difficult because we have so many people that now cannot do the jobs that they used to do because of long COVID. And that is that is extremely difficult, not, not only for the entire, again, U.S. economy, but for that person. We've had some great pieces actually through one of the projects at the Century Foundation called the Voices of the Disability Economic Justice Project with people talking about this and what it means to become disabled because of long COVID and not be able to do the things you used to be able to do so easily every day. Our policies have not changed fast enough to be able to support everyone. That includes our healthcare policies. That includes now our education policies. And it includes, again, those workforce policies and accommodations that people need. Well, there was a thoughtful piece from last June in the Washington Post that talked about what supports and education veteran advocates can offer to to long haulers, you know, dealing with not just new problems, but with, as you're saying, with a new identity. And it also talked about sort of tensions within the disability community, which many marginalized communities is often finds itself struggling over limited resources. And now there are millions more more people involved. And it's just it's an interesting situation. But I just wanted to lift up there was one quote in this piece from a guy who says, long COVID gives a chance to make some updates to health policy, in part because the condition is affecting, he said, quote, a different mix of people than what we've seen in the traditional disability population, close quote. Now, I'm not trying to stir up trouble here, um, (laughs) but it sounds a little like we're getting a better class of disabled now, not that ragtag group you're used to, you know, and there's an implication, in other words, that now maybe there will be the power to change things. And I guess that arouses mixed feelings in me is what I want to say. It does. And I think there's a couple ways to unpack that. One, there's a narrative out there that the disability community are kind of fakers and takers. That's a narrative that we have to undo because it's an incorrect narrative and it's a narrative that really doesn't actually help. It only harms the disability community because Again, anyone can become disabled at any point in their life. That quote that you mentioned, it really ignores the fact that there's sort of a a false narrative that's already circulated about the disability community. But I think on the other side, what the quote does acknowledge is that having a whole new influx of people to the community 
gives a renewed energy and a renewed movement to the policies that are needed. When all of a sudden you have a bunch of other people that have entered, a, you know, any community, any movement, there's different energy behind it. You know, all of a sudden we have senators who are saying, I need this. I'm part of this community. I guess now we need a bill on it. That's very different. And we don't always see that. And so we do get some of that renewed energy. And that's really important. But at the same time, we have to balance that with the fact that we have a false narrative that exists. And that just breeds into the stigma against disability that we really need to try to overcome. If the comment is partly acknowledging that some of the COVID long haulers have wealth, then one can very sadly ask for how long? The nexus between disability and poverty is central, and of course that's key to the collaborative's work. I'm not sure that it's really understood how policy choices, not disability, but policy choices, put disabled people in struggle and keep them there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I promise I could talk about that for hours. <laughs> um, disability and poverty are so connected. And some say the whole structure and the whole system is broken. Well, unfortunately, the whole system is actually working exactly as how it was designed. It is keeping disabled people in poverty because that's how the system was structured. And so it's not that the system was broken. It's the, the system has to be completely corrected. And what I mean by that is that so many of our policies have been designed to keep disabled people out of work to keep disabled people from actually building wealth and to keep disabled people from even, you know, getting the care that they need to live independently. Some of our healthcare policies really actually preference institutional care, not living in a community. So undoing that entangled web of policies that really focus on keeping people with disabilities in poverty is extraordinarily difficult. And that's something that we have to do. Even outside of wealth, I would say social and political capital that people hold, leveraging that as we start to make some work on all of this is going to be really important. Counterspin listeners will have heard us reference the Medicaid divorce, you know, in which people (laughs) have to get divorced in order to keep their health care because if they're married or they can't get married because (laughs) together they make too much money. It's cruel and it's often hidden, I think, to other folks. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many choices that I think so many people do have to make. And it's just how you start to allocate funds to try to just live day to day. I mean, you know, I acknowledge that I I have privilege because I, I work at a great place that has health insurance, but I also... I'm a high health cost user. I, I have infusions that without insurance would be $30,000 a month. Thank goodness for insurance. I also have to spend a lot of money towards that because I could never qualify for Medicaid to help pay for that. So you think about like, even though I acknowledge the privilege that I have to be able to afford what I do, the whole system is stacked against you when you are a person with a disability and trying to get the care you need from the cost of prescriptions, the cost of specialists, the cost of getting home to new-based living, the cost of a direct care worker, trying to access the workplace you need, and the list goes on. And the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative is saying there are things we can do, there are policy changes that we can make that can, as you're saying, not tweak and not fiddle with and perfect the system that we have, but really fundamentally overhaul it. Absolutely. 
so much of what we do does tinker on the edges. And we're saying we need to stop just tinkering. And so much of disability policy is siloed. And again, we've been caught in this web that I mentioned before for so long. Instead, what we're saying is let's bring a lens of disabilities to all economic policymaking, food security, transportation, housing. What we are trying to do at the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative is really bring a disability lens to all economic policymaking. And that's really the goal, whether, again, you're doing all of these different policies, it's trying to embed disability into every single piece that you are working on. So we are saying, let's center the values that disabled people need and bring that into all of our domestic policy work. So I'm going to give an example. We believe every disabled person needs to have access to reliable, affordable, and accessible transportation. That's something that's fundamental. And so we want to see that no matter what the bill is, what the proposal is, what the law is, regulation, (laughs) I could go on, right? Mm -hmm. That's the goal we want to see throughout. And the same thing for healthcare, access to healthcare they need, access to food. And so we've developed a framework. We call it the Disability Economic Justice Policy Framework. We want to see that embedded into domestic policymaking to really move the needle on how we think about policymaking with a disability lens. Because every issue is a disability issue, and that goes for media as well as for policy. Every story that impacts disabled people should include awareness of the impact, is my feeling. You know, it's, it's not bad to have occasional reports that focus solely on disability or the disabled community, but if you're reporting rent hikes or food prices or criminal justice, well, disabled people are in that reality, so they should be in the story. Do you have any thoughts, finally, about media coverage? Yeah, I think it is really important for media coverage to think more about disability. I think one of the things we see is, you're exactly right, there will, there will be a, a story about something related to disability, and then you won't see something else until it's very disability-centric. And everything in between ignores that disability exists. And we know that that's just not how disability is in our lives. Disability is part of the natural human experience. And so very much so, I think disability just needs to be embedded more into the stories that we hear about and part of the narrative throughout everyone's life. I also would encourage in the media that it's not about disability being an inspiration. I think that's where the lean tends to go when there is a disability-centric story. And it's just disability is part of the life that we all live. And here's the story that happens to be about a disabled person or a narrative that we're talking about. And so those are some of the pieces that I think would be great to think about more. We've been speaking with Kim Noxted of the Century Foundation and the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative. You can find their work online at tcf.org. Kim Noxted, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. The unspoken premise of most major news reporting is that people are all independent economic actors making choices about what skills to acquire, what workplace to work at, what salary to negotiate. The economy overall reflects the range of those choices and their impacts. 
The idea that people find themselves in jobs or sectors with differing pay scales and workplace rights informs what news media see as acceptable states of affairs and what they present as reasonable interventions, which is why it takes an active effort to see the role that policy has played and does play in shaping employment opportunities. And what's more, how using policy to help people would reflect not the insertion of the government hand into a hitherto untampered with realm, but simply the use of policy to address a keystone problem. Algernon Austin is the Director for Race and Economic Justice at the Center for Economic and Policy Research and author of, most recently, America is Not Post-Racial, Xenophobia, Islamophobia, Racism, and the 44th President. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Algernon Austin. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, the headlines tell me that unemployment in the United States is at a record low, and you sort of seem uninformed or churlish to not acknowledge, if not celebrate that. But it's important, isn't it, to recognize the limits of that raw number, what and who is being obscured there? Absolutely. The unemployment rate, it's a valid statistical measure. However, it's important to recognize its limitations. To be counted as unemployed, you have to be actively looking for work. You have to have been actively looking for work in the past four weeks. And if you have faced significant obstacles in finding work, or if you are unfortunate enough to live in some of our more economically depressed areas, then you're not likely to be actively looking for work because you've been rejected repeatedly from employers or you look around your community and you know that there are no jobs available. And for individuals in those circumstances, they stop actively looking for work, although they would like to work. But Even though they don't have a job and would like to work, because they're not actively looking for work, they are not counted as unemployed. So in that way, the unemployment rate presents a significant undercount of the overall rate of joblessness. And the undercount is most severe in populations that, as I mentioned, face a lot of discrimination in the labor market or live in more economically disadvantaged communities. So that means that although the black unemployment rate has been consistently about twice the white unemployment rate for the last 60 years, so this two-to-one ratio has been a permanent sort of structural feature of our economy, although that black unemployment rate being twice the white rate is still a high rate, it still undercounts the black joblessness by a significant degree. So if we had a count of black joblessness, it would be a multiple, two, three, four times what the the official black unemployment rate is. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, because part of the sort of celebration about the relatively low unemployment rate has, has named, has said, you know, and this is also reflecting advances in terms of Black employment. So what is the status? You've just indicated it, but comparative black and white employment or unemployment, is that changing historically, that relationship? 
No, over the last 60 years, and I highlight 60 years because this is the 60th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, and the title, March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, this is the march where uh, Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. People forget that there were significant economic demands, including demands for jobs at that march. And unfortunately, the black unemployment rate was twice the white unemployment rate in 1963. It's about twice the white unemployment rate today. And it's been about twice the white unemployment rate for all 60 years. So this is the serious structural problem in uh, American society. And it's a problem because racial discrimination in the labor market, I talked about economically depressed communities. I mean, the black communities have been hurt uh, significantly by the decline in manufacturing because of deindustrialization, et cetera. And the broader problem, remember I said that there are lots of joblessness that's not being counted, right. mass incarceration that uh, hit black communities and particularly black men particularly severely contributes to that hidden joblessness in black communities. Because if you're a black man and you have a criminal record, it becomes very difficult for you to find work among the the black populations that are not likely to be counted in unemployment statistics. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about history, which is so relevant here, but often kind of dropped out. You know, the history is there to be found, but it seems like only some things survive as kind of dominant narrative. And one thing that is dropped out is the role that the government played with regard to jobs during the Great Depression. And I wonder if you could just tell listeners a little something about that and the import of that history today. Yes, it's important to recognize. People don't fully recognize. You know, our discourse, this this gets me to a a sort of tangential issue. Mm. Our discourse about the working class in the United States tends to be coded white. Right. But the majority of black people are working class people. The majority of Latino people are working class people. And increasingly, as our country becomes more racially and ethnically diverse, the working class is every day becoming more and more racially and ethnically diverse. So we really have to change our thinking about when we think about working class. Remember that we're also talking about the majority of black people and the majority of the Latino or Hispanic population. So the the WPA, the Works Progress Administration during the Great Depression, it's really important for people to realize that in response to this, this massive economic downturn and massive high rates of unemployment, the government stepped in and directly created jobs for people. And the positive thing about that is that it included black people. And at the height of the WPA jobs program, over 400,000 black workers were employed by the WPA. So this is really a really important example because it shows that the federal government can create jobs and can employ black workers. So today, as I mentioned, we have a really significant, even in a period of historically low unemployment rate for black people, because the black unemployment rate is still twice the white unemployment rate and because 
a lot of black joblessness is not counted in the unemployment rate, we still have a massive need for jobs in black communities. And the WPA shows us that the federal government can actually address this through direct job creation, through subsidized employment programs, which is what the WPA was. And I'm actually involved in a campaign that's called Full Employment for All that's calling for the federal government to create a national subsidized employment program that's targeted to communities that suffer from persistently high rates of joblessness. And people can find out about that and sign on to it at the website fullemploymentforall.org. And although we're talking about the importance and the, the crisis of joblessness for black people, it's important to recognize that there are other places across the country that also have significant levels of joblessness. So in Appalachia, you also have significant joblessness. In the Southwest, you can find several communities with high levels of joblessness. Among the Native American or American Indian population, you can find many of those communities suffering for high rates of joblessness. President Biden, in his State of the Union address, talked about forgotten places and people. And so Full Employment for All is about let's target job creation to these forgotten places and people and include them in the American economy. Well, let me just ask you, finally, on the level of ideas and in terms of media, it's sort of seen as um, unserious or unsophisticated to say that you can't understand why we have lots of people who want jobs and lots of jobs that want doing. And the idea that the government would play a role in connecting those things is somehow not serious. And I just wonder how we fight that. Yeah, it's like you said, I think, in your introduction, the government exists to serve the people. The government exists to make our lives better. And unfortunately, the American government does do that. But unfortunately, it does that primarily for the wealthy people who pay the lobbyists. So the government is constantly enacting policies that help people. It's often helping wealthy people via helping corporations. But what we saw during the Great Depression with the WPA was the government working to help average working people. And we need more efforts to get our policymakers to enact policies that help average working people or average people who would like to work, as, as I'm doing in the full Employment for All campaign, making sure the government provides jobs for those people. We've been speaking with Algernon Austin. He's Director for Race and Economic Justice at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. They're online at CEPR.net, C-E-P-R.net, and that website we've discussed is fullemploymentforall.org. Thank you so much, Algernon Austin, for joining us this week on Counterspin. It's been a great pleasure for me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. You can learn more about FAIR on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.